Judges chapter 7. If you're not turned there yet, if you'll join me there as we continue our study through the book of Judges together. I don't know about you, but this is certainly one of those sections of Scripture, Judges 6, 7, and 8, as we are looking at the life of Gideon, where we kind of get a reminder for ourselves uh, to some of those questions we ask sometimes, like, why would the Lord... Uh, work in the life of that person or perhaps we may sometimes ask why would the Lord work in that way or why is he working in that way and of course Isaiah tells us that God says that my thoughts are not your thoughts uh, and my ways are not your ways and as far as the heavens are above the earth uh, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts and uh, God certainly indeed works we've I think all seen to some extent in our lives in unlikely ways and a lot of times the way we would expect God to work, really practical, really obvious, uh, what would seem to be the norm, the automatic. Uh, a lot of times we find with the Lord that he works outside of those things, that the, uh, the, the way for God for one location to the next location may not always be a, a straight line. We say, okay, the, uh, the shortest way from one point to another is a straight line. And, and from God's perspective, it, it may not always be that way. It may be he takes us this way and then that way and then backwards seven steps and then forward three and then back to the right four and and then ultimately brings us to where he wants us to be because oftentimes for God he knows the destination is going to happen but he's he's interested in the process and what the process accomplishes in our lives that he would be glorified that we would be benefited that the world would see things about him that, that need to be revealed because God is a God of revelation and I think this section as we look at the life of Gideon and what God was doing through Gideon's life is a real testament to that we saw as we looked at chapter 6 last time by way of refreshment that Israel again had done evil in the sight of the Lord and as a result of that God in his discipline made them vulnerable and subject to their enemies the Midianites who came and it tells us for seven years they were oppressing the children of Israel and prevailing over them and every time remember Israel would uh, get their crops prepared they do all the work and have everything ready the Midianites would just come in and they would just ruin uh, all of their crops and ravage everything I mean kind of one of those things as we said like imagine just working all week long and you put in all the hard work uh, and then you get your paycheck and some bully comes along and steals it and cashes the paycheck and puts it into his bank account and you go home with nothing after you put on all the effort and the work and just how disheartening that must have been. And this was going on for seven years, again, as God was sort of trying to get the attention of the children of Israel in this time where they had turned away from him once again. And of course, as they cried out to the Lord, ultimately, God, as we've seen this pattern in the book of Judges, raises up now another deliverer. And this time, the judge or the deliverer he chooses is clearly a very unlikely individual. The Lord goes and reveals himself to this man named Gideon, who it says was hiding in the wine press, threshing wheat. So he's, he's a, a man who obviously lacks courage. He's not looking to have any hassle. He's looking to just avoid everything possible and keep to himself. And the Lord goes and reveals himself to him and says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And right away he begins to wonder, I think maybe you have the wrong address. Why are you contacting me? And the Lord begins to indicate to him that he was to go and to save Israel from the Midianites and that the Lord was sending him. Well, Gideon then worked, remember, through his process of his own insufficiencies and his own insecurities. Uh, I'm the least in my father's house. I'm a weak man. How could you possibly use me? All those natural human dynamics. And the Lord revealed himself to him in a powerful way, gave him a sign as fire came out of a rock. But ultimately, the change, the real change came in Gideon's life in chapter 6, verse 34, where there it says, but the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And it was at that point that the change came into his life. I always love that statement. We'll see it later on. It's a reference to Saul's life a little further on in the New Testament where it says the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul and it says he was turned into another man. And what a wonderful thing that the Spirit of God, when he comes upon our life in power, is able to take our lives 
and completely transition them. We see this in the New Testament where the disciples, they're weak, they're fearful, they're hiding in an upper room, terrified of the Roman authorities and for their lives shortly after the the death of Jesus. Uh, And then the Spirit of God is poured out upon their lives and all of a sudden they become these bold, uh, ferocious, like -like, lion-like individuals who are proclaiming the gospel with such boldness and courage and tenacity and they're willing to lay down their lives for the Lord. And the only thing you can attribute the change to in these men's lives who were bumbling and weak and cowardly and self-centered and then all of a sudden they're individuals who in a short matter of time it says literally turn the world upside down for Jesus is the very fact that the Spirit of God came upon their life uh, and their life was changed they were radically transformed and and this was the case with Gideon all of a sudden now courage fills his sails he's taking God at his word he's ready to embrace the call of God nothing's changed Uh, he hasn't been more sufficiently trained he hasn't somehow acquired a greater education what he has done is he's now embraced the call of God and the anointing of God has come upon his life which has now prepared him. And so verse 34 says, when the spirit came on him, then he was ready to step into action and obedience. And he blew the trumpet and the Abizarites gathered behind him. Remember, he sent messengers out through some of the tribes, Manasseh and Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali. So he now rallies the troops together, which bring us now to chapter seven, where we pick it up tonight in verse one. It says, and then Jerubbabel, and remember this was another name, given to Gideon after he had torn down his father's altar to Baal, his first step, a small step of obedience as he was gaining his courage and demonstrating his faithfulness in small things. We saw in chapter 6, he was renamed this by the community people. Gideon or Jerubbabel, synonymous with the same. And all the people who were with him rose early and they encamped beside the well of Herod so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. So we now have Gideon assembled together, all those who answer his call to come and to fight against the Midianites as he puts out the, the call, the draft, if you would. And now we have rallying together a small segment of the Israelite population. And it says that they assemble the Israelites beside the well of Harad. The Midianites are now camped and they're prepared for battle on the north side by the hill of Moray in the valley. That's about a geographically about a three to four mile distance. So they're not too far apart from each other. Uh, And in ancient warfare, typically you'd send out scouts and kind of have an awareness of what was going on. Now, we know from later on in chapter 8, verse 10, that the Midianites at this point have rallied together 135,000 soldiers not to mention that they had camels and other things that were helpful uh, in that type of ancient warfare. The Israelites, we're going to see in the next few verses here, when Gideon puts out his first call for people to come and join him when he blew the trumpet, 32,000 assemble. So at this point, the odds are like four to one. There's 32,000 Israelites. There's 135,000 Midianites. So the odds are certainly stacked against them, four to one. But I'm supposing, if I'm somewhat like Gideon, I'm probably feeling pretty encouraged. Because if I think I'm a nothing and I'm a knucklehead and I'm the, I'm the last person that God would use, and you put out a call and 32,000 people show up, that's not too bad. If that's 32,000. I mean, that's 31,999 more people than I had uh, before I put the word out. So perhaps he's feeling slightly encouraged, but then maybe his word trickles back from maybe the scouts that are starting to get an awareness a few miles. Well, they have a hundred and th- they have about four times the amount of soldiers that we do. So the odds here are stacked against them, which brings us to a very interesting thing that God now begins to do, which shows us, as I said, that God works in very unlikely ways. And that's what this chapter certainly shows us. Perhaps some of us are very familiar with it. It appears that God oftentimes works in the least likely way that we expect something to happen. So perhaps there's something in your life and you're thinking, well, I mean, that could pop. There's no way that that could happen. I mean, that's the, the odds of that happening. Well, that just may be the odd that God's playing. Because that's how God works. And we're going to watch here that God begins to do things in a very unusual way. And again, it's all about him 
getting the glory in the process, him setting the stage that he could get the greatest revelation of his power and his greatness to reveal his glory to those around him. So the Lord, imagine this, you're Gideon, says to Gideon, Gideon, the people who are with you are too small. You need to get some more troops. Send out another battle cry. No, he says the opposite. Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest, here's the reason, Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying my own hand has saved me. Now, the odds are four to one, 32,000 versus 135,000 trained warriors who also have camels and so forth, things that aid in the, uh, the, the practices of warfare. And God now speaks to Gideon. He says, Gideon, you know what? Those odds, four to one. Yeah, Lord, four to one. I mean, can we bolster the troops? I mean, yeah, the odds are, and he says, I, I don't like those odds. I don't like them either, God. I, I don't like four to one either. I mean, two to one. I mean, two to one with you on our side. And he says, Gideon, I, I don't like those odds. Actually, the odds are too good. We have to make the odds worse, Gideon. Because if we don't make the odds worse, then he says, I know the propensity of human nature and the people of Israel, if I give you victory with four to one odds, they're going to claim glory for themselves. And somehow, no matter what happens still, they will find a way to think they're the one that did it themselves. That it was about how special they are or how talented they are or what a great job they did or their strategy or intelligence or their skill. And again, just going to show here, God knows human nature very, very well. And he knows how difficult it is for us as human beings not to take the credit for good things that happen in our lives. That, that we, by nature, you know, we say some people are thrill seekers. Well, the bottom line is human beings are glory seekers. And we may not be you know, willing or, or wanting to admit it, but the truth of the matter is we, we struggle with wanting credit for things. We enjoy the applause. We like a little pat on the back. We, we, like, we like attention. We like people to take notice of us. We, there's something very perverse about all of our flesh. I don't care who we are, and it may come in different ways than all of ours, but, but we, our flesh enjoys that. We have an appetite for attention and glory and praise and admiration. Again, who hasn't perhaps maybe done it before yourself or you've even met someone or talking to someone and they're putting themselves down. And you know the reason they're putting themselves down is because what they want to put up. And, and, and I always say, stop fishing for compliments. You know, we talked about this when the girls were you know, growing up at times. They'd be putting us down. I said, stop it. You're, you're fishing for a false compliment. You're just putting, oh, I'm, I'm, you're, you're trying to say that to get people to say nice things about you. And, and we're very perverse in our human nature. And God knows that if something good happens in our life, we are so prone to want to grab the glory, to take the bow for God and so forth. And he knows that as he works in our lives. So a lot of times, whether it's given us victory over sin or success in something we put our hand to, or, or maybe God using us in some way to serve him in some capacity, to lead somebody to Christ, or to do ministry in some way, God knows so often that he has to work in a way where it's so, so, so evident that it's him, that that's the only way that he will end up getting the glory. And this is part of the nature of God, and not just his awareness of us. Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. It tells us in Isaiah 48, 11, again, the Lord says, for my own sake, for my sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another. So you, you seem to get the idea doctrinally that what God reveals of himself is that he doesn't share his glory. And so when someone wants to take a bow for God or draw attention to themselves in the name of God and the work of God and the ways of God, where, yes, I'm doing things for God, I'm doing things for God in a way whereby I want you to really admire me. And, and really be impressed with me and really, and really you know, just be enamored with me. And, and God says, you're robbing me. You're robbing me of my glory. You know, perhaps in some ways, you know, we would do better from church pulpits instead of beating people up, telling them they're robbing God by not giving them their money to tell people, no, we're robbing God because we keep trying to take God's glory. 
because we probably rob God a lot more that way than we do in I don't think God needs our money, but God wants the glory. God says, I will not give my glory to another. It's something that he's... And again, why is that? Is that because a God has some strength? No. God's glory has a purpose, and this is what we need to understand. God being glorified has a set purpose. Why? Because God's glory reveals God to humanity. As God is glorified, God is manifested, and people see God. And again, remember Jesus said that people would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God's glory has a purpose. Human glory has a purpose as well. It's just the wrong purpose. It's the, in the same way it draws attention to ourselves. God's glory has a positive purpose, that God would be glorified, that God would then be revealed and manifested to people. So God says, I don't want them to claim glory. We're going to have to reduce the troops, Gideon. I'm sure this was shocking him as it would shock all of us. Verse 3, now therefore, he says, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilboa and 22,000 member of the 32,000 22,000 of the people returned they went home and only 10,000 remained so God knows how to thin the ranks here and, and he says we're going to have to cut down the, the numbers Gideon that's too many people or the people will think that they did it and they'll claim the glory for the victory so he says here's what I want you to do this I assure you will thin the ranks Gideon he says, employ Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 8. This was already a principle given back in the book of Deuteronomy that the, the commanders were to say anyone who was fearful among the ranks could depart and they didn't have to go out to warfare because the fearful soldiers would cause the rest of the ranks to become faint-hearted. So they would thin the ranks like this militarily. So God says, just employ this principle and God knows that this would drastically reduce the numbers and two-thirds are reduced and go home. Again, take notice, God knows, again, human nature, and he knows how to, to thin a crowd. What does he do? Very simply, he just appeals to the selfishness of human nature. He says, whoever's fearful and afraid, who, 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 whoever is concerned about themselves, let them go home. Those who are willing to sacrifice, those who are willing to care about something bigger than themselves, they'll remain. But he says, I know human nature and two-thirds of the people there, Gideon, people are innately selfish. Most people, if you give them the option, they don't want to sacrifice. Most people, if you give them the option, human nature, people don't want commitment. They don't want sacrifice. If there's any way they can have an excuse to get out of something, they'll gladly take it. And God knows human nature. That the natural tendency of us is to be lazy, to be self-preserved, to, to uh, uh, oh, an excuse, all right, I'll take it. An excuse, absolutely, I'll, I'll embrace it. So God knows there would be a, a reduced, a minimal amount who would be willing to say, no, I'll sacrifice. Because humans by nature don't want to sacrifice. We don't want commitment. So God says to employ this, two-thirds go home. Gideon must be thinking, oh my goodness, this is getting worse. Now the odds are 13.5 to 1. Because now there's 10,000 Israelites, there's 135,000 Midianites, and he must be thinking, wow, God, I mean, that was pretty drastic. I mean, at least we got 10,000 troops, and, and, but I mean, wow, we have 32,000, and you just slimmed our ranks down to 10,000, verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still <laughs> too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So word number two comes from the Lord Gideon. That's a pretty good reduction. But, you know, I, I'm, I still don't like these odds. They're still not bad enough. We're going we're gonna to have to make the odds even worse, Gideon, to make sure that the people don't claim glory and to make sure that I'm properly honored in the process. So he says, take them down to the nearby water that's there. And he says, and, and I'm going to have you let them get a drink and I'll test and sort of sift out and separate two different camps. And he says, among one group, I'm going to say, look, that's the group you keep. And he says, among the other group, those are the ones that then you're going to send home once again. So, so bring them down there, he says, and I'll test them. And whoever I say to you, this one shall go, that's who will go. And whoever I say shall not go, the same shall not go. Again, take notice, who is the one here ultimately 
that is determining who would do the works of God. It's God. It's God. It, it, it's not, you know, God saying to Gideon, Gideon, I want you to put out some applications, let them fill out some things, and we'll review all the applications and see the credentials. God says, listen, the ones that I say should go with you, they'll go. The ones that I say shouldn't go with you, they shouldn't go with you. And here again, you see God doing his work, and God selects those who are his servants. God selects those who he will use. And I think this is a principle that's important that we recognize that the work of God should be done by God being the one to determine how his work gets done. Sometimes that is simply a matter of God saying, this is who I've chosen to do that work. This is who I've chosen. And that we would embrace that. Look, it has nothing to do with anything else. It has nothing to do with this or talent or experience or seniority. It, it's the call of God. It's who God selected. God said, this is the one that I've chosen. And here God says, I'll choose who to go, and I'll also choose who will not go. And so imagine this process now. This must have been worse than the first time. Verse 5, so he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people, that is 9,700, they got down on their knees to drink water. Now, basically, they go down to the water. He says, all right, men, you know, take a moment here. Everybody wants to get a drink. And there probably was a process. I don't think there's, you know, got 10,000 people spanned along a, a river here. Probably one, you know, in groups they were going down. And, and Gideon was was watching and God had conveyed to him and I guess these are apparently two basic ways people would get down this is a very ordinary thing you know just drinking water but in this very ordinary thing some would seems would get down on all fours and just kind of bury their face in the water and drink the water out of thirst in an arid climate others were for whatever reason maybe they you know had bad backs or whatever and they just bend down on one knee and they're scooping the water and sort of lapping it like a dog would sort of drinking water out of a bowl now there are those you know, commentators like to take the time and read into, okay, well, this is why they lapped it. And the ones that were doing like this, they were more perceptive. And so God, you know, narrows down, you know, a certain group or whatever. I, I, you know, at this point, Gideon doesn't even know which group God's going to pick. He just sees, okay, 300 men did this. And I want you to put yourself in Gideon. 300 men did this. So, okay, you guys all go over there. 9,700 did it the more normal way. And if I'm Gideon, I'm thinking, whew, all right, this time God only took away 300. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's what I'd be thinking. Oh, thank you, Lord. That, the first time, that 22,000, that rocked my world. But God, certainly this time, all right, you have a mercy on me. I mean, you knew I, I could handle 22, but you're only taking away 300 this time. And can you imagine at that point when verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you <laughs> and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his tent. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands and sent away the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and he retained those 300 men. So, now he gets word, the 300 men who cupped the water, and those are the ones, Gideon, that I've chosen and I've selected. Now, now you have 300 Israelites versus 135,000 Midianites. That's now 450 to 1. That's really bad odds. I mean, that, that is just, you can't get much worse than that where you think there is just no possible way. That's, that, there's just, that's an impossibility at this point. 300 people, I mean, even if we try a buddy system, I mean, how are we going to do that? 300 men against 135,000 soldiers. And again, as I said, there are those who want to take this and look at it as a way of, you know, there was something unique or special about those 300 that the ones that put their faces down in the water, they weren't alert and aware and, and keeping their eye open for the enemy. So the 300 that were really sort of like the green, you know, they had the ingrained green beret, Navy SEAL kind of temperament. So they were stealthily, you know, you know, looking around for a Midianite in the bushes or something. To me, that defeats the whole purpose of the passage. Because what are you doing? You're giving glory to men. Oh, 300 green berets. And isn't that how humanity would think? 
Well, we just had to, that's all it takes is 300 of our Navy SEALs to wipe out 135,000. That would be claiming glory for themselves. It's very likely that these 300 individuals were just so odd and 9,700 of them were more than normal people, it may be that these 300 individuals were the individuals who had bad backs, who, like I said, were just like the most unlikely group and the, the, the most odd and unusual individuals. And God said, there you go, now I have my crew. Taking 32,000, reducing it to the most 300 unlikely, improbable people that something could come through. And God says, okay, that's the small enough group now. It seems like the odds are enough against it where there's just no possible way anything good or, or wonderful could come. And God says, now I can work. Now I can work. And again, taking consideration what God's doing here, God may sometimes stack the odds against us purposely, this reminds us. Sometimes in our life when God wants to work, he may purposely stack the odds against us for his purposes, for his glory. And we're thinking, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, you just, you know, you, what is this? Reduction, 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 fall apart, fall apart, losing this, losing that. Lord, what, what are you doing? Lord, wait, sometimes that's called pruning. Sometimes there's a process where God, like we prune natural, will prune something all the way down so that God can work in a way whereby he then is the one that accomplishes it in his ways and in his purposes. And sometimes God may make the odds very impossible purposely just to show us his power, to show us his work, to reveal things to us. So we need to take heart. Again, this is an account recorded in scripture for our encouragement that this is how God chose to work. It must have been very unusual. Again, if you put yourself in the literal sandals of Gideon, these men, I mean, this is a rather intimidating thing here. That's kind of a scary thought to go into armed conflict. They're thinking against this many soldiers. Well, all the rest are sent home. He retains the 300 in verse 8, continues saying, Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp. For here's God's promise. I have delivered it into your hand. There he has the promise of God. It doesn't matter. You know, by, by many or by few, that doesn't prohibit God from working. He says, I've delivered it into your hand, but here's the graciousness of God. Look what he says to him. If you are afraid to go down. So again, see the compassion of God. God says, look, I've delivered it, Gideon. I've given you my promise. But if you need encouragement, Gideon. Aren't you thankful that sometimes God condescends to our humanity and he says, I, I know you need a little encouragement. And sometimes God knows we need a little boost of encouragement or confirmation to strengthen our faith, to let us see his hand in a special way. And this is what he does with Gideon. Watch what he does here. But if you're afraid to go down to the, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, into the Midianite camp, sort of scout around at night, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So Gideon takes God at his offer. He went down with pure as servant to the outpost, verse 11, of the armed men who were in the camp. And now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. Again, 135,000 devouring locusts. And their camels were without number, innumerable. That's a lot of tanks. And as the sand by the seashore in multitude, look what happens, verse 13. And when Gideon had come there, a man was telling his dream to his companion. And he said, hey, I've had a dream. And to my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. And it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Kind of sounds like your dreams, doesn't it? A loaf of bread rolls down the hill, knocks a tent over, and what, the, what does that have to do with anything? And, and, and his companion, hearing the dream, God supernaturally gives him the gift of interpretation, a pagan person, but God can do what he wants by his spirit. This pagan companion answers and says, hey, it shows you how terrified the fear of dread and God was on him. This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Now, you want to talk about God's mercy and kindness? And, and look what happens here. In order to encourage Gideon to give him a little boost in his faith, 
to, to give him a little pick-me-up to, to help him. God's control and timing of events and things that happen. He says, go down into the camp. And he just so happens to go down into the camp, sees all these massive amount of people, and he happens to walk by an area, him and his servant, and God allows him to overhear these two individuals having a conversation, and God causes that man to have a dream the night before, and then just to happen to be talking about that dream at that specific moment when Gideon comes by and his friend would just happen to interpret the dream in that way and, and, and all this so that Gideon can be encouraged to say, I've had, I had this crazy dream last night and they're thinking nothing and just in this barley loaf. And again, uh, barley was the most common of bread. It was, the, it was the food typically of the poor or, or of animal feed in that day. When it says a barley loaf, don't get the idea here, some big monstrous uh, you know, uh, barley thing rolling down the hill. I mean, this was like like a hamburger bun. So you know, here's this little hamburger bun rolling down the hill, and it knocks over a tent. Now, not one of these Walmart sixty dollar little. You know, these are big tents with eighteen inch steel spikes driven. Into the, and so this was a, a very odd and unusual thing. And then this man comes out of the blue and he says, "Oh my goodness, that that's a revelation that this man Gideon." from the God of Israel is going to come and he's going to overthrow our entire army all so that Gideon can hear this and so that Gideon can be encouraged. Are you so thankful, I know I am, how God can control timing and events of things in our lives in everyday circumstances to just give you that little word of encouragement once in a while? Or maybe you walk into a situation and two people are talking about something and they're having a conversation completely disconnected to you and because of what you hear, God prophetically speaks something into your heart and you go, wow, God, I overheard that, but that was for me. God, that was for me. I heard that. And, 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 and Or you just happen to be in your car at the hour that you are and to flip on the station that you do and here's some... You know, uh, you know, Christian, you know, Bible teaching program, and it just happens to be the the verse that you need to hear, the statement that you need to hear, and you realize there's no way that that could be a coincidence. It's a God incidence. It's where God, in these amazing ways, I mean, the Master of the Universe, where He He orchestrates the timing and the events of all these things, and why does He do it? Out of His love for us, to encourage us, to let us know, listen, I'm on your side. I'm with you. I'm involved in what you're doing. I'm in this. And I'm giving you this little, this little indication in this way where you could not have known or planned. And I'm doing this just to show you you're on target. This is what you're supposed to be doing. And, and this is the confirmation of that very thing. And this must have certainly strengthened the faith of Gideon because verse 15 says, So it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped notice as, as this happens he just spontaneous gratitude he just stops and he just starts to worship the Lord out of appreciation Lord you are so good Lord thank you so much right you, I needed to hear that God you knew I needed to hear that Lord thank you so much for showing me you're real thank you so much for just giving me a little pick me up a little encouragement to confirm to me that this is you and, and that truly you're trying to show me something and that I'm hearing from you correctly thank you and he just starts to worship the Lord and then he returned to the camp of Israel now emboldened in faith and said arise for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand and he divided the 300 men into three companies and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. Now, again, we, we can't just gloss over this. He, he, the troops have been reduced down to 300 people. He now comes back to the camp, it says, and he now is their commander, this little 300 ragamuffin group of, of a, a military group that's going to take on this massive Midianite army. And he says, arise. The Lord's delivered Midian into your hand. It's time, boys. God is with us. He's going to give us the victory. And he says, so here's what I want you to do. And he divides the men up into three companies. 100. I want 100 of you over here. And I want 100 of you over there. And I want 100 of you. And they're thinking, okay, we're getting in our marching you know, alignments here. And we're getting ready for battle. And he says, okay, now let's hand out the equipment. And all of a sudden, he says, here's a trumpet. A trumpet? Okay, well, there's a trumpet. And, and, and here's a pitcher, a, a, a clay pitcher. Okay, well, we can do with that. Okay. And, and, and here's a torch. 
Now, if I'm the, the people that are with him, I'm thinking, where's the Uzi? I mean, the machine guns. So again, it's 300, 135,000. You know, a spear, a sword or something, a, a, a pitcher, a, 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 you know, an a earthen vessel, a, a, a torch, a trumpet. We're going to you know, blow their ears off or something. I mean, and, and this must have been very unusual for them. Again, using very unusual things. Now it's 300 soldiers, 450 to 1, and they don't even have a weapon. They don't even have a weapon. They have 300 trumpets, 300 torches with pitchers, empty pitchers. The idea is to hide the, the torch, to hide the light underneath the pitcher, and that's all they have, no other information. Verse 17 shows you that what's God doing? God's working, and how's he working? He's making them walk it out by faith, one step at a time. No extra information, one step at a time. Verse 17, he then says to the troops, look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. So he says, when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp. And we're going to all shout the sword of the Lord. Uh, wait a minute, Gideon. We don't have swords. <laughs> the sword of the Lord. Obviously, there was a spiritual sword because it would be a miraculous victory that God was going to bring. We're going to shout the sword of the Lord and Gideon. So he, he hands out the equipment and he says, listen, here's what I want you to do. Pay attention. Look, look at me. And, and you, you follow my lead. You do as I do, he says, and you just keep your eyes on me. And he says, when you see what I do, you do likewise and you just follow my lead. And again, as I see this in the leadership of Gideon towards those who are following him, it just reminds me, verse 17, very beautifully in many ways of, of really what Jesus wants us to do as we follow him. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep, and his, he's our leader and we're his servants. I think this is often what the Lord says, look, just look at me, look at me. You keep your eyes on me. Don't look at the circumstances. Don't look at what they have and what you don't have. Just you look at me. Keep your eyes on me. And you do what I do. You just emulate me. You follow me. You, you, you live the way that I would live. And you do likewise. And, and, and just watch. And you shall do as I do. And he tells them, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to blow the trumpet. And when I do that, we're going to pull out our torches and shout this statement, the sword of the Lord. And Gideon, verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, which would be around 10 p.m. at night. The beginning of the middle watch. Now, you want to talk about something else. I think truly, I believe God must have given supernatural faith to these 300 individuals to trust Gideon. I mean, they've got to be thinking, are you sure about this? But again, there was something about the, the sense in their heart that they believed God was in this. They believed God's hand was upon his life. But again, I think strong leadership always breeds a level of commitment where they are confidently following this man with this very unusual battle plan with very unrealistic odds. So they go, the 300, and at around 10 o'clock at night, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets, and then they all broke their pitchers so that the lights would be exposed now out of the darkness. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, and they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And, and look what happens. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. There was sort of a, a chaos, a, a pandemonium among the ranks of the Midianite and Amalekite troops that were assembled. When the 300 blew the trumpets and the Lord, verse 22, here's the supernatural intervention. The Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp and the army fled to Beth Acacia towards Zerah as far as the border of Abel Mahola by Taboth. So here's what happens. It's 10 o'clock at night. Most people are probably out retired for the night. 
were certainly winding down again in that ancient culture they didn't have the 10 o'clock evening news they didn't have you know things to do typically when the sun went down you went down and when the sun came up you went up so most people it's 10 o'clock at night they're either out retired for the night all that's up is sort of the limited group of watchmen maybe a changeover the beginning of the middle watch so maybe you have a group of tired soldiers getting ready to go to bed you have others maybe who are just waking up to take over their post and all of a sudden out of the sheer darkness of, of a, a desert-like climate in that ancient culture there out of the sheer darkness all of a sudden these loud trumpet blasts begin to come forth and all of these lights begin to light up all around them where the 300 individuals were at now keep in mind in that culture typically when you had a brigade of soldiers you may have you know a, a commander with a thousand troops and so forth you usually had one trumpeter out front and maybe one person with a torch that would light the way so when all of a sudden they're awoken out of sleep all these people and others who are half groggy and all of a sudden out of the quiet of the night there's this shrill of 300 trumpets which in their understanding could indicate 300 different brigades of maybe a thousand soldiers apiece these are just the front men of all these and then the torches light up they're thinking oh my goodness we're surrounded with perhaps 300,000 potential. So now they think we're outnumbered three to one and pandemonium breaks out among them and they're just sort of kind of you know losing their minds and God uses this and certainly it was something of a miraculous element and God causes them to actually start slaughtering themselves among the troops. They don't even have to raise a sword. God just deals with their enemy for them. So many of them begin to kill each other, turning their swords on their own companion. The rest begin to flee and run. And verse 3 says, The men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come. So he's now asking for reinforcements because they have the upper hand and they're now chasing the Midianites. They're on the run. So he calls out a second battle cry for reinforcements to come in to do the mop-up mission to finish pursuing them. He gets sent messengers throughout the mountains of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites, seize them from the watering places as far as Beth Bara and the Jordan. And the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Bara and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Urib and Zeb, and they killed Urib at the rock of Urib. So apparently because this was where this man was executed, that was named after him at the rock of Urib. And Zeb, they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian and they brought the heads. I know that's a beautiful image, right, ladies? They brought the heads of Urib and Zeb to Gideon. Here's the heads to the kings, Gideon. On the other side of the Jordan. Now watch what happens. Chapter 8, verse 1. Of course, no chapter breaks in the original manuscripts. Now the men of Ephraim, who had been called in as reinforcements and who had went and captured and killed these two kings, the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, Why have you done this to us? By not calling us when you went to fight against the Midianites. And they reprimanded him sharply. So the men of Ephraim, at this point now, again, whatever they're motivation be it jealousy whatever it may be they all of a sudden now begin to get angered and they start to reprimand Gideon and say hey what's up with you how come you wait until after they're on the run then you call us as reinforcers why don't you let us be involved in the whole battle who do you think you are how come you didn't include us and they begin to get angry at him and start to attack him personally it says reprimanding him saying well, what's this how come you call us after they're on the on on the run how come you don't call us initially why did you do this by excluding us how come you left us out why didn't you include us and this sense of jealousy and anger and frustration comes upon them because they weren't included and they're somehow offended by that personally. Well, verse 2, it says, Gideon said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has delivered into your hand the princes of Midian, Urib and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Now, this shows you incredible. We would use the word tact, 
diplomacy. I would use the word spiritual wisdom. Here's Gideon. Now, he could have very easily got very defensive. He could have very easily took this personal as they're saying, what's the matter with you? Why didn't you include us? And they're jealous and they're upset. And he, well, look, God, God called me. He didn't call you. I mean, he could have got all up in arms about this. But instead, he very wisely maintains self-control and wisdom. And rather than take it personal and get all defensive, instead, he employs Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Instead, Gideon says, whoa, whoa, wait, listen. I mean, what did I do in comparison to you? I mean, you did the you did the big thing. You took down two of the kings. You took down two of the princes, Oreb and Zeb. What did I do in comparison to you? You wow! I mean, you took down took off the heads of two of the princes. All we did was take out some foot soldiers. And he compliments them, and he speaks kindly and softly to them in response. And what does he do? He diffuses their bad attitudes and even their immaturity and their carnality, and he diffuses it. And this is a tremendous indication of wisdom and spiritual leadership. That rather than instigate an issue, he diffuses it. He doesn't need to seek glory or attention for himself or, again, throw around his weight or his authority or prove that he's right. He just very graciously lets them say what they say. And it says there that when he speaks to them in this way, very tactfully with diplomacy, that their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Boy, there, I think there's great wisdom there in the way Gideon handled it. It shows you the character of this man and great lesson for us sometimes because we can throw logs on the fire we can throw gasoline because we know that we're right or wherever and somebody else maybe they do have a bad attitude or they're just jealous or they're attacking us for some ulterior motive or whatever and we can make an issue get inflamed or we can diffuse it like Gideon does here and certainly there's great wisdom that's seen in this so verse 4 says when Gideon came to the Jordan he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted but still in pursuit. So again, they're, they're, they're wiped out. They've been at this all night, but though they're tired, notice, they don't just give up and turn in. They continue to be faithful because why? They want to complete what God has told them to do. They're exhausted, but they're still in pursuit. They could have just said, look, well, that's good enough. I mean, man, I mean, we really had quite a victory there and we did take out two of their kings and, and, and so certainly I think that's sufficient and they could have backed off, but that wasn't the heart of Gideon. The heart of Gideon was God said that he was doing something and what God has asked us to do, we must carry it out to completion. We must fulfill it. And I think there's, again, just a beauty in this, a faithfulness that he, though tired, and sometimes we're wearied and we're exhausted, but that should never hinder us from being faithful to complete what we should do, exhausted, but still faithful to pursue and to finish what he knew that he should. And he said to the men of Sukkoth, because him and his men were wearied, please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I'm pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, two of the kings still on the run, from Midian. And the leaders of Sukkoth, keep in mind, these are his Jewish brothers, said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, for this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna to my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and briar. So again, Gideon wasn't a pushover. You can look at what happened in the first few verses and think, oh, okay, this guy is just kind of weak. He's passive. He's a pushover. Apparently, he's not a pushover because here, now what's he doing? Now, he's advocating for his men. Well, in fact, look at verse 8 as well. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. So he spoke also to the men of Penuel saying, when I come back in peace, and I will once I catch them, I'm going to tear down your tower. And apparently that was pretty important there in their territory. Now, I want you to notice something. Again, as I said, this isn't a passive, weak, wimpy man. Oh, he's just a pushover. He just, no, what, what this is is a man who knows when there's a time to be angry and firm and when is a time not to be angry and firm. I want you to take notice. He does not allow his anger to control him and to dominate him when the insults are towards him personally. In the first few verses, the, the attack is personal against him. He doesn't respond in anger in that situation, but he responds graciously and he deflects it with wisdom and self-denial. But now the issue is others. 
Now the issue is his troops who are starving and weary and who have faithfully fought in battle. And he says to them, listen, can you give some bread? My, my soldiers, they're ready to fall over. They're faint. And, and he asked some of his brothers, the fellow Jews in the area of Sukkoth, listen, give us some bread, would you? My, my troops are weakened and we're pursuing the Midianites. And everybody should have been grateful for that. The Midianites had harassed them for seven years. And instead of supporting them and helping them, verse 6 and verse 8 tell us that these two different people groups, they rather sarcastically say, well, I don't see them fully conquered yet. Don't count your, what is it? Don't count your eggs before they hatch or something like that. You know the statement, whatever that's supposed to mean. Your chickens before they hatch. I'm not a farmer, sorry. And then they not only don't help, but they're very sarcastic in the process. And now Gideon gets very firm. He says, when I come back, I'm going to teach you a lesson or two. And he becomes very firm. But his anger, notice, is exercised righteously. Why? Because now you're harming someone that he cares about. And this, I see, is a, is a very beautiful and really, honestly, somewhat Christ-like thing. Jesus never got angry and retaliated against people who harmed him personally. But Jesus was very defensive and very firm when he saw people hurting and taking advantage of other people. Remember when he saw people ripping people off in the marketplace? When Jesus saw others that he cared about being mistreated, that was when his anger was righteously inflamed. And here Gideon, I think, demonstrates the same thing. Because those he cares about were being mistreated in this way, he puts out a pretty severe threat against these two territories. Uh, and he's going to carry it out. We'll see as we go. And we're going to have to stop here. So I have to leave you on the cliffhanger with what happens there. But again... Good reminders for us because, you know, a lot of times when the Lord is working in our lives, so often we have to always, always remember we are a people whose citizenship is in heaven. And so because of that, we're going to be like foreigners, like, like pilgrims, like people who are in a, in, 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 in a foreign land because the way that we operate and do things it's not the way the world does things. And so because of that, we always have to be open in the faith. Listen, I can't adopt my patterns and ways of doing things by how everybody else in my job does or by how everybody else in my family does or by how everybody else in my community does. I need to do things the way that God would have me do things and to let God work in his unusual ways and that my chief aim and desire to be, Lord, whatever glorifies you most. And if that means denying myself, if that means having to trust you, if that means you, Lord, having to strip away all the odds so that you can ultimately work in your way, Lord, however you'd be most glorified, that we would be a people who are zealous for God's glory.